Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. Europe's post-2008 financial crises have provided opportunities for Chinese overseas investment in cash-strapped European states. China's large-scale investment across Europe is not only changing the old continent's economic landscape, however. It's also changing national attitudes towards China. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and today on the Harvard on China podcast, I'm talking with the Brookings Institution's Philippe Lacour, who is the co-author of China's Offensive in Europe from Brookings Institution Press. My name is Philippe Lacour. I'm a visiting fellow at the、uh, Brookings Institution in the Foreign Policy Program, and also、uh, an adjunct lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. And、uh, here at Harvard, I used to be a fellow. I was a fellow with the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs.、Uh, delighted to be here to present my book, China's Offensive in Europe, which is about Chinese investment and the relations between Europe and China. You are obviously a European. We are both Europeans. Um, I was born in France,、really? so、okay. I have a, my dad lives in Toulouse. Excellent. So,、uh, well, yeah. so the, the, China, the, the Toulouse airport is now run by China, so you you'll be in familiar territory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're very very far, are they? Yeah, it, it's quite interesting, and actually, it's part of the trend that you talk about in the book is this growing investment into quite some quite big infrastructure projects in Europe. I mean, the Toulouse airport was quite a stunning story. I mean,、uh, French government thinks、uh, it's not strategic. Which I tend to disagree with because it's first of all it's Airbus headquarters. Secondly, it's France, maybe fourth largest airport. I mean, obviously, you are a European and you study China, so there's a sort of personal link there, perhaps. But why investment in particular? What what brought your attention to that? So, I mean, my 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 background as a, as a China expert started、um, in the eighties as a, as a foreign correspondent,、uh, living in Taiwan, then in Beijing, then in Hong Kong. China has been part of my life ever since, and. I tried my luck at, at consulting for a few years, and I was a partner of a firm that was、uh, handling partly the Shanghai World Expo. I used that time in Shanghai in in 2010 to、uh, develop connections with Chinese companies that wanted to invest in abroad and particularly in Europe, and it, it worked quite well. So you know, we not only the, the Shanghai Expo project, which was quite. Fascinating, of course. Seventy-three million visitors,、um, but this policy of Zhou、uh, Zhuqu means,、um, you know, going out and expanding、uh, started slightly earlier than that in the late nineties under Zhu、uh, Rongji and, and, and Jiang Zemin. But it, it started to materialize、uh, perhaps in two thousand and eight with the Euro debt crisis and when Greece started、uh, collapsing. And the president of the European Commission,、uh, Jose Manuel Barroso, received a An interesting phone calls from Premier、uh, Wen Jiabao、uh, saying, "Look,、uh, we can help by、uh, euro bonds, and 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 we can perhaps uh, uh, come to the rescue of some of these、um, southern European countries that that have huge、uh, cash needs." But as far as I'm concerned,、um, I became interested in in Chinese companies not just as a journalist many many years ago, but also working for this consulting company and and helping some of them to set up their offices. In in Europe, and noticing many of them were still you know a little bit out of place、uh, working in Europe, especially these Chinese expats that were coming from、uh, you know Beijing or Shanghai, and who were somewhat familiar with the Anglo-Saxon way. 
way of doing things. But when it came to Germany, France, Italy, of course, uh, every, each of these countries ha has its own culture and language. So it took many years, really, for these mainland Chinese to establish themselves. And, and investment, of course, as uh, Professor Richard Cooper says, uh, is a real commitment. So I believe uh, it's, a, it's a long learning process for them. And of course, as often in the West, China's ambition is not well understood. The One Belt One Road initiative, which is somewhat related to this wave of Chinese overseas investments, is also not very clear to anybody. So, I mean, there's the, the purely investment side. If you look case by case, what is successful, what isn't, which sector they are investing in, which country. Uh, but there's also the more strategic point of view. Uh, why is China favoring Europe as opposed to the United States? Uh, well, there are several reasons for that. One of them is uh, Sino-European relationship is much less controversial and, and competitive than the US-China uh, relationship. Of course, there are economic reasons as well. The, the exchange rate was very favorable after the euro debt crisis, and there are many opportunities. I mean, the, the deindustrialization process that's been taking place in the West has affected many European countries and still affects European countries. So China has benefited from from all this. China is interested in brands, and the West has many brands, and China is interested in technology. And if you take a country like Germany, there are many brands that, that were set up in the past 30 years, extremely successful, some of them doing really well in China, for example. Interestingly, the, uh, the trade surplus that Germany had uh, with, with China has converted into a trade deficit, almost like everybody else, uh, which is kind of leading to a, uh, a shift of moods uh, in Germany about Chinese investment. What's interesting always when you hear discussions about Europe is how little people refer to Europe as a singular whole. So talking about German trade deficits with China and Chinese investment in Portugal. Is that bilateral setup? Is that very typical of how you see investment coming from China into Europe? Well, each country has its own uh, benefits. And, you know, first of all, a number of countries have, have had long-term long relations with China. If you take uh, Great Britain, uh, of course, back to the Opium Wars. Uh, if you take uh, France and the, the sack of the Summer Palace, <laughs> not very good news, really. Uh, if you take Portugal, uh, that was the, uh, the nation that, you know, once uh, occupied uh, Taiwan, uh, Formosa, it's a, it's a Portuguese name, and, and indeed Macau, that was a, a, a Portuguese colony until 1999. So these are sort of very long-term relations, and, and you know, and France, of course, uh, in, in 1964 was the first Western country to recognize the PRC, which was a very gaullist gesture and very interesting move uh, from uh, President de Gaulle. Meanwhile, those who were in Beijing from an early stage in the post-cultural revolution uh, life of the PRC, uh, that means when Deng Xiaoping you know, came back to power in the late um, 70s, and when he launched the open-door policy, of course, some of these countries benefited somewhat from their early entry, and I'm thinking about France in particular. Uh, so there are a lot of sort of you know, bilateral relations. But uh, meanwhile, the European Union has become also a, a very strong partner 
uh, and it's, it's today's China's top trading partner. So uh, it's very important. And that's why the, the European Union institutions play a major role on trade issues. And China has understood that the EU is their main interlocutor when it comes to you know, anti-dumping, uh, when it comes to the market economy status. And on the other hand, for investment, it still remains a, a sort of domestic issue just because it involves you know, national security, employment, buying a piece of land in a community and interacting with all kinds of stakeholders. Just like in the United States, uh, governors tend to, to have a very clear idea of which foreign investor wants to get engaged with the state of uh, Delaware or, or South Carolina, you know, because it's it's part of their community, it's part of their job. It's not the job of the federal government, as it shouldn't be the job of the European Union uh, institutions. So when we look at the European Union, we obviously talk about it in terms of a divide between national level governments and then the sort of higher, loose, thin line of the European Union. One of the big arguments that came out of the Brexit debate in the UK was this idea that if we leave the European Union, we can do more trade with China, Mm. which personally I think is a rubbish argument because Germany has been China's largest trading partner for a long time and is very much part of the European Union. Do you see within Europe a division between China working at the EU level and China working at national levels? And if so, does that start to reinforce some of the existing divisions within Europe when it comes to national versus EU? So, as always, there's the, there's the business element and there's the strategic uh, political element. And in China, politics are never very far away. And so in 2004, when the EU enlarged itself with 10, followed by two, two more, Bulgaria and Romania, uh, China really thought that, you know, something big was happening and that, you know, with an enlarged EU of 28 members, Beijing was finally getting a large interlocutor that wasn't going to be Washington, and that was going to play not just a trade and economic role, but also a political role. And it was, in fact, the intention of some of the European leaders. But as we know, I mean, you refer to the the Brexit uh, referendum, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, Now, of course, Brussels appears a trading block with um, officials dealing with mainly economic issues, a few diplomatic issues, for example, statements about the South China Sea came out of EU high representative Federica Mogherini. Uh, And sometimes it's quite convenient for national governments to use the EU to put out statements that are not necessarily comfortable. Having said that, there is a division between a number of uh, uh, large countries, for example, Germany and France, and, and a number of you know Eastern and Central European countries. Some of these new uh, members, member states, who feel um, they should look at China as an example, perhaps as a model, and also in terms of cash. You know, China has been there, been helping to build the Belgrade Budapest uh, high-speed train. Uh, they are. They have all kinds of energy projects. They are running the Ljubljana airport. They're, they're really engaging and they are trying to use Eastern Europe as a manufacturing place in order to, to sell more products into the rest of Europe. So that takes us back to sort of an original question, which is why is the Chinese government 
investing so much money abroad, whether it's in the One Belt, One Road or these huge infrastructure projects. For example, you brought up Serbia and there's this high-speed rail between Belgrade and Budapest that's being constructed. But on top of that, the Chinese government has just given a cash investment to finish off the ring road that goes around Belgrade. Putting in a, a ring road around Belgrade is obviously a large capital investment from China into a country with questionable returns, you know. So that means that there's a huge amount of capital outflow from China at the moment. Obviously, there's this huge overview of One Belt, One Road, you know, we're going to link up all of the infrastructure throughout Central Europe and into Europe, but it's a very long-term view of the world. So how does China reconcile this very long-term view with short-term capital it is a policy from the uh, from the very top to to um, send their companies abroad. Uh, sending cash abroad as I mean, sort of individual cash is not obviously a government policy, but it is happening anyway. Um, in general, I mean, China still has you know the biggest uh, foreign reserves in the world, uh, three point two trillion dollars. Uh, uh, even though it's, it's shrunk a little bit uh, over the past two years, it used to be four trillion. Um, but it's um, you know. All this money has been put into uh, sovereign funds, for example, the CIC. Um, there are there are development banks such as the China Development Bank. Um, there are infrastructures in place, financial infrastructures in place to to uh, convey this money to governments, and and for example, that's what they've been doing in Africa and Latin America for all these years. So of course, in in Europe, that's why you know I, I was telling you at the beginning of my experience. For example, the commercial banks, the Chinese commercial banks, have established branches in London, Paris, uh, Brussels, uh, Munich, uh, Barcelona, everywhere, in order to convey this money and to help Chinese enterprises, many of them are state-owned enterprises, to, to invest into projects and to help Chinese entrepreneurs to, to carry on their, their projects. You know, I think China has several objectives. One of them uh, is to use this cash. Secondly, to uh, to use some of the the overcapacity in steel, cement, uh, coal, and that's that's really the, the purpose of One Belt One Road. They need to feed the, the Chinese economic engine and perhaps help some of the companies back in China to continue growing and, and exporting. So that's why the, you know the, having people on the ground outside of China China can be useful. And I would say finally that uh, China is trying to improve, to increase its food. It's conscious of a fairly poor image in, in Western societies. It's due to uh, misrepresentations of China, perhaps a lack of knowledge on the part of uh, Western societies. And the problem is for China to try to give a, a brighter picture. For this to happen, these investments have to work and they have to show to these European countries that they are there to help the European economy, not just to take. It's not going to be you know, a walk in the park. It's going to be very long and, uh, and, and, and complex and, and uh, Europeans still don't understand China by and large. Brexit has obviously thrown a spanner in the works, not only in terms of the UK, but also the European project as a whole. You know, it's one of the sort of existential crises that the, the European Union seems to be facing. How do you see Brexit affecting China's relationship with the UK? 
So obviously there, there are so many uh, questions being asked uh, about Brexit. As far as China is concerned, well, I mean, the UK under David Cameron was the first country to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. This was followed a few months later by uh, Xi Jinping's state visit to London, uh, which pleased the Chinese enormously. But also led to a debate within the British society and about Chinese investments in, in key utilities, including a nuclear plant. So when Prime Minister May came to power last uh, June, she actually halted Hinkley Point project for a while. She was the former Home Secretary, with obviously a lot of experience in security. And uh, I find that quite interesting that she... I don't know what the Chinese will be doing in the UK. Obviously, the UK will be a sort of standalone country. And I don't believe that Chinese will leave the UK. They will use the UK as a financial center. They will probably keep investing in, in this nuclear project. Uh, I don't believe they'll have many more investments in, in utilities because uh, what George Osborne wanted to do in the north of England, for example, the, the so-called northern powerhouse, I don't believe the Chinese are, are interested anymore. The British market is, is fairly small compared to the, the large EU market. And at the end of the day, the Chinese uh, are interested in a large consumer market. Thank you so much for coming and being on our podcast. Today. My pleasure.